Have you ever experienced something that changed the way you looked at reality? That before this thing happened, you thought of the world one way, and this one thing changed, and then the way you looked at the world almost had to be completely rebuilt. Well, Paul did. That's why he's here in Athens talking about all this stuff that we just read. That's happened to me as well, and it's happened uh, more than one time. I'll, I'll share one time with you. One time was five and a half years ago, my first child was born, uh, Benjamin. And I was really excited. Me and my wife were really excited. And when he came, I just, I didn't know what to expect. And what happened was that I saw this little baby and there were so many other babies that I'd seen before. But I saw this child, this baby, and it was my child, my baby. And my heart was welling up with an affection I could never remember feeling something quite like. And I remember I was moved to even write about this experience. And there was a word that sort of emanated from this time as uh, my wife and I, Becky, were in the hospital, and it was just the word amen, just that there was an affirmation of life that I knew with some level of certainty and a lot of faith and hope and love that God liked this, that he enjoyed this, now, Benjamin's five, and if you've been a part of this church for any length of time, you've seen him because he's running around, crashing into things, um, and he's very active. And so that moment that I was in, that, that nearness I felt with God and that nearness I felt with my, my new family there, it, it shifted and changed over time. And, and the way that I lived my life had to change quite often. And I had to shift how I responded to the world around me, how I prioritized my time. It was a foundational shift in reality for me. This happens to all of us at one point or another. And this is what is at the cusp of happening when we look at this spot in history, that Paul is introducing a whole new way of understanding reality to the people here in Athens. And we're going to look at this morning how that shifted history as we know it and shifted the very way that each of us think and feel about the world and what we think about where and who God is. We're going to look at the nearness or as a question, the nearness of God. And what do we do if God is as close as what the uh, writer Luke and the speaker Paul says that he is? What do we do with that idea and that concept? We're going to explore that through uh, four different ideas or points. Um, the first 
is this idea of admitted ignorance, of admitting you don't know something. The second is what does a culture know? What do cultures know? The third is about idols, then and now. And the fourth is repent. So when we think about these ideas and we would think about these things and we encounter a God that's near or not, what does repentance mean? What does repentance look like? And what Paul is encouraging the Athens and us today to do. So, these guys here, these Greek thinkers, these people who've been influenced by the ancient ideas of the, of the Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, yes, they had all these idols, but these folks that Paul was talking with, they had a very specific idea of what the divine, of what God was like. They had this understanding that, yes, there's these different, you know, gods that we talk about, but there's really sort of this complete separation of the material world, the things that we can see and interact with, and then this mental or spiritual world that was completely separate and disconnected. And that this spiritual world is where the ideal was, where the good was, and that the material world was not so much that way. And this is really important throughout what we're going to talk about this morning because it still greatly affects the way that we've thought about God and the way that we've thought about divine things, things of God. But the interesting thing here is that in this Greek way of thinking, Paul notices something. He notices that they have an admitted ignorance about this divine presence, this of who God is, when he comes across this idol that says, to an unknown God. So although they had this framework and this idea, they still had plenty of room for doubt, for ignorance. But here's the problem. What Paul introduces to them is so different and so foreign that they're going to have a really hard time embracing this idea about who God is. So he finds this point. He finds this point where they're like, hey, we don't know. We don't know what God is like. And he tries to speak into that. He tries to tell them, well, I'll tell you about this God. And he's actually been here. He has not been contained in this spiritual other world, but he has been in this world, incarnate the word made flesh, a completely foreign idea to those thinkers at the time, and a very different way of looking at the world. It's like this. It's like when you're talking about somebody, like you're saying like, well, you know, I think what would be really good for her is if she like started uh, going to some therapy or if she would just like get over, and then that person walks into the room. The conversation changes when that happens, doesn't it? You can talk about someone and the idea of someone all day, but if somebody actually comes into the room, then all of a sudden you have to talk with them. 
And that's what Paul is saying has happened with God, that you can talk about this idea of God all you want, but I'm here to tell you he's actually entered into the room and the conversation has to change. Listen to this quote by the scholar and missionary Leslie Newbegin. He says this, at the heart of the Christian message was a new fact. God had acted God had acted in a way that, if believed, must henceforth determine all our ways of thinking. It could not merely fit into existing ways of understanding the world without fundamentally changing them. So, this was an interesting predicament that Paul was in to have to convince people of looking at reality in this different kind of way. But it's not really the same as what we're working with right now. It's not, it's not really the same kind of worldviews that we exactly have uh, today. Because some of you, this is not a compelling thing. This is not a compelling idea. It's not a new idea. It's just the water that you've been swimming in. Yes, God came, he was Jesus, sure. I don't really know if I even buy that, but I'm kind of, you know, I was raised in it. I'm, I'm kind of giving it a shot still. Um, so I want to also speak to, and I want to talk about where has, this is, this is going to get a, a, almost a little bit college lecture for a moment. Some of you are like, you already are there, Jamin, but I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to keep it down low, keep it down with us. Um, I want to talk about for just a minute why do we think the way that we think about these ideas about God right now? And this is not going to be a thorough historical analysis. If any of you are scholars out there, you'll say, well, you missed some really important stuff, Jamin. I know I did. I was cutting and cutting and cutting, trying to bring this down to a sermon uh, for a while. So here's what happens. This idea that God entered the room gets accepted. It gets accepted into the normal discourse of the Western world. And it gets adopted even as the main state religion. And then in the end of the fourth century, beginning of the fifth century, this guy named Augustine of Hippo, North, North Africa, who was a master of Greek thought and rhetoric, he gets converted. He believes in Jesus, the Messiah, that God had stepped into the room, that God had not just been an idea that we talked about, but that he had actually stepped into the room and that he died on a cross and rose from the dead. And so this reordered Augustine's world. It shook the very foundations of how he perceived and interacted with reality. And it's summed up, his way of thinking is summed up in this uh, Latin and translated into English phrase, credo unt intelligum. I believe in order to know. I believe in order to know. Does that sound like the way that we live our lives as contemporary people? I believe in order to know. Not really. It's more usually the, if you prove it to me, then I'll believe it. 
But what's interesting is what we can see from how this affected the Western world is some new principles came into existence. Because before the idea was either God is distant and and, and detached and this material world is just chaotic, or there are all these gods, but they're constantly fighting and they're messing things up for us. Like we're the collateral damage of their fighting. And so the world is very chaotic. But as this new idea, this idea that God dwelt among us, that God became man, and that not only that, but when he died, was resurrected still in this material world, in this material flesh, that there must be something good about this world, this material world, that there must be something that there's order to it, that if God created it, as we see Paul writing here, then there must be some organization to it. There must be some purpose in the way things are happening. And so some theologians got together in the fourth century and they wrote down these four purposes, starting with that God is a creator of an ordered universe. And what happened in the Western world is that technology began to grow that science began to develop more than it had in the past, and that people began to develop more medicines and ways of doing things, that the world was previously sort of happening in fits and starts because of what they believed about the divine. So here's what I'm saying. Here's what I want you to think about as I'm talking about all these things that might seem really boring to you is just that there are ideas of God, waters that we're swimming in, that it's going to come to your neighborhood real fast all of a sudden about how you view your own faith. And it doesn't come out of vacuum. You didn't make it up. You weren't the really smart one who decided, I'm going to see God this way. It's the water that you were swimming in, and these are some of the people who got us there. And so I want us to hear this this morning to see Do we believe that God is near and what are the implications? What have they been? What could they be for our world, our culture, and for you as an individual? So, fourth century, Augustine says, or Augustine, I mean, says, I believe in order to know. I believe these things about God and that lets me know how the world should work. Therefore, I can interact meaningfully and purposefully in the world. So then we fast forward into the 1600s in the Western world and we come to another turning point where this philosopher and mathematician, a guy named Rene Descartes, he says this, I think, therefore I am. And he devises this way of seeing the world actually initiated by a cardinal of the church who was impressed by his rhetoric and his way of thinking. He, he constructs this way of the world of thinking about how can we prove with absolute certainty that there is a God? The cardinal charged him with that task. And I'm going to tell you right now, it didn't go well for us as human beings at least in the faith arena, at least in the purpose of life arena. So here's here's one of the things, uh, one of the precepts that uh, Descartes 
developed. He said this, the first precept of his way of thinking of, of viewing the world was never to accept a thing as true until I knew it was as such without a single doubt. Without a single doubt. So he went on to attempt to prove without a single doubt that God was real and that that could be argued with just hard, cold evidence which means you don't need faith, which means faith isn't a part of the equation anymore. It's just you believe things because they're objectively true, that some things are just self-evident. So two things, important things happen from this. One is we have smartphones now, and we went to the moon, and when we um, pour a glass of wine some people talk about what it tastes like. Other people talk about the science of the aeration of it and how, you know, all this stuff goes on. So that was one of the effects. Amazing accomplishments happened. But there was another side of the coin with this because Descartes was under the impression that he could make objective, uh, uh, he could make objective claims about the world. That there was no such thing as uh, a subjective reality or that if it was, if it was subjective, it should be discarded for really hard evidence. So things were self-evident in the world and that is what we should live our lives based on. All right. I don't know if this is going to work or not. Y'all have to tell me afterwards if this is working or not. Because you know, this, 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 this ain't the way I always preach, but I'm, go, I'm trying it, okay? Are y'all with me at all a little bit? Say a little bit? All right, so here's, what, here's, here's where we are so far. There's this idea. I believe it happened. I believe it was a fact, which just means something that happened, that God came into the room through Jesus. And we had all this progress, and uh, Augustine said, I believe in order to know. Then we fast forward, we've got Descartes, and he said, you know what? We shouldn't have to believe in God. We should be able to know for certain, for absolute certain, and I promise this is coming to your neighborhood, that God is real and that there is some quality of understanding we can know for absolute sure with no risk that God is real. So, again, Newbegin says this about this turn in Western history. He was reversing the method of Augustine. Doubt, not faith, was the path to knowledge. So, in a world, this, this led to a world where we are today. How can we know anything for certain? Do we really know anything for certain? You know how skeptical our generation is of science? We're like so skeptical. We, we say, yeah, sure, well, maybe that's it, but the earth is actually probably flat. Any flat earthers out there? We doubt everything now. We are skeptical of just about anything. So in a world where everything that is known has to be known with absolute certainty, 
How can there be truth? I mean, it's to the point where people can doubt if the third season of Stranger Things is going to be any good. I lost some people on that one. Here's, here's one for, for maybe a, a, little, little, a bit of the older generation. We could doubt that like Facebook isn't going to record everything that we're doing in our living room. Right? Maybe that hit an older generation a little bit, right? We doubt so many different things. We doubt if even anyone made it to the moon. I had a conversation with somebody about that recently. He was offended that, uh, that I would ask him that question. He's like, you think I'm a conspiracy theorist? So the people of Athens in, in ancient Greece, they admitted that they had ignorance about who God was. But us today... We scrutinize based on the history of this thought world that we've come up in and come up through everything, and we don't want to have to believe something. We want to believe that only things that are hard, objective evidence can be known. So what does that leave us with? What does our culture know? Our second point, what does our culture actually know. So I'm going to quote Newbegin one more time in talking about the reference of, of Christianity coming into the world and how it would have to interact with this other way of thinking, this Greek thinking of the separation of spiritual and material. He says this about communicating it. He said, it could not form part of any worldview except one which it was the basis. But at the same time, it could only be communicated to the world of classical thought by using the language of classical thought. So here, here in this passage, Paul doesn't really quote any scripture. He's speaking to the Greeks in a way that the Greeks understand. He's talking to them in their culture, in their language, the way that they understand the world. And he's telling them, you know already that God is near. You've talked about it. Let me, let me remind you of what some of the people in your culture have already told you. Do you see where I'm starting to go with this? Do you get it? Are you following me yet? So the, he quotes some poems. There's one he quotes from this guy, Eratus. And I got the uh, uh, the whole stanza of the poem on the screen there. He says, let us begin with Zeus. Never, O oh men, let us leave him unmentioned. All the ways are full of Zeus and all the marketplaces of human beings. The sea is full of him, so are the harbors. In every way, we have all to do with Zeus, for we are truly his offspring. So, Paul's saying to them, hey, you got the right idea about God. We are his offspring, but you got the wrong God. You got the wrong identity here. You have imagined this person, but I'm saying he's actually entered and come on the scene. And so he's talking about these idols. Right after that, in verse 29, if you look at the scriptures, he says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. So he's using their own logic, their own way of thinking to say, if God is in everything, why would you put him into this idol? 
Why would you confine him to this little space? This is not so different from our reality, our way of thinking, our way of doing things when we really start to think about it. If God really did come on the scene, if Jesus came into this world, then God is much more near than we usually operate, act, or behave. So Paul knew something. I believe Paul thought that he could go into any culture anywhere and he could find something like this about the culture, that he could find the nearness of God in what they thought or believed, like it says in Colossians 1, that in all things Christ dwells. So when we speed back up into our sort of modern mindset, there was this guy named Michael Polanyi, a Hungarian scientist. He studied crystals, and he started making all these discoveries about crystals for the Soviet government. And there, science was being used as just a means to produce um, functional things in the world to, to make the Soviet government stronger. And he eventually left science, and he became a philosopher, and he developed this idea it's called tacit knowledge and also this idea of personal knowledge. And so Descartes was over here saying, well, knowledge is something that can be objectively known, that you don't need traditions, you don't need religion, you don't need faith, and if you need any of those things, it should be utterly rejected. And Polanyi, Polanyi the scientist, turned philosopher said, I don't think that's true at all. I think in order to do science, you're in a line of tradition thinking through other things the way other people have. You actually have to believe something in order to test it against something else. That in fact, belief is inherent to all of the decisions and things that we do in the world. Think about it. You have to believe, even if you get into a car to go somewhere, that that car is actually going to take you there. Now, depending on what kind of car you drive, you know, I might not believe that, you know. If you drive Fords, you know, that might not work. <laughs> I want to speak to another part of the, the audience on that one real quick, make sure they were awake. Um, you have to even believe if... There's food in front of you. You have to believe that, it's, that it can like nourish you to eat it. Like you have to have belief for just about anything. And so Paul knew this about the people, the Greeks of ancient times, and the scientist turned philosopher knows that about us today. But here's what's happened. There's been a marriage. It's coming to our neighborhood right now. There's been a marriage and it took a long time to get there. Good job, you made it. So here we go. There's been a marriage in our faith in Christianity between, a, between science and also what science has led to, which is basically hopelessness, nihilism, the idea that, hey, there's really no purpose. If we can't quantify it, if we can't put it in a test tube, it's not real. God's dead. That whole thing, Nietzsche, all those guys. And it's left us with kind of two possible realities in this sort of secular world. I say that in quotes because it's still based on beliefs. It's either 
anything's true is only science, only thing objective, or there is no big T truth, and we just live in this postmodern world and everybody needs their own truth, our own little idols that we can interact with and deal with, and my truth is my stuff and your truth is your stuff. That's kind of the options we've been left with. And even our our faith as Christians, like many of us might even believe that about what we believe about God. Well, that's just like my thing. You believe your religion. And it's even scary to kind of say that out loud because that's just the water that we swim in today. If If you aren't under the religion of science, well, hey, it's just gotta be your own personal truth, your own own sort of belief. Even though I have a book sitting on my desk right now called This Idea Must Die, and it's about filled with scientists and other people arguing against their different beliefs about the universe, their religion. So this is what's happened. If, you're, if you consider yourself a more liberal Christian, what's happened in most of liberal Christianity is this, that because science is the only objective reality, we've submitted our faith to science and said if it cannot be objectively with evidence convinced of without any belief needed, we throw that part out. So no resurrection, no Jesus wasn't actually the son of God, he was just kind of an enlightened dude. And then on the fundamental side, what we call conservative or the fundamental side they have adopted then this idea that we have to look at the Bible as a scientist makes observations about reality. That we look at it and we say, I am going to prove from this verse to this verse to this verse that it's absolutely certain without a doubt that God is this guy and he's this and he did this and this is true and this is real. And without even knowing it, Science has co-opted the whole point of what we're doing, which is faith, to believe something in order to know something. A a, a singer once said, you don't see in order to believe, but you believe in order to see. By faith, the invisible. So either way, the whole reason I've taken us down that path long, boring college lecture journey is to say, look, there's something to grapple with and consider here that Paul is asking the Athenians to grapple and consider with here. Did God enter reality through the person of Jesus or not? Did he actually walk among us Did he actually die? And was he actually raised from the dead? We can have our idols. We can have our superstitions. The idols of the day are science and are different truths for every person. But if we choose, if we choose to risk enough to say that this is true, that we believe God entered the world, then we got to repent. That's what Paul ends his passage by saying. We've got to repent because we've allowed other ideas to co-opt our ways of thinking. I have. I've wasted time 
trying to use scientific methodology on my Bible or letting science say what's true in my Bible or what's true about my experience in my life. I'm not saying we need to get rid of science. I'm just saying science ain't theology and science ain't philosophy. And if I got trouble in my life, I'm not gonna go read a Stephen Hawking book to figure out what to do and how to find purpose in my life. Or if I'm struggling with my gender identity, I ain't going to a scientist because he could tell me or she can tell me how all day long or the what, but they can't tell me the why. They can't tell me the why. Where does purpose come from? Why am I here? This is why the Christian faith is so compelling to me. I like science. I'm no good at math, but I like math. It's cool. It's interesting. And I also like having my own little truth. Like, it's all good. Like, I don't want to have to tell you about Jesus. Like, you got your truth. I got my truth. But that contradicts our faith. This whole thing about Jesus has shaped reality as we know it. That Greek thought still floating around a little bit, like like a little bit of food in your water bottle after a little while, like it's still in there. But the drink is about a crucified Messiah. That's what shaped our reality. And Descartes thought all these ideas were self-evident, but then when Western world started going and invading and colonizing other places, they found out, oh, you know what? Why, if these truths are self-evident, don't these other cultures share it? Because he, without knowing it, was relying on a thousand years of Christian perspective. So, If you believe that God is near, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then we repent. Repent means change your mind. What do we need to change our mind about? What have we been holding so close to, depending on how we view our faith, which side of the thing that we need to take another look at? Something that we've been defending because we know if we open that up, our world might have to change. It might have to shift dramatically. A few few years ago, for me, my world shifted again in many ways. And I began a journey of my own where the way that I looked at God, it stopped working for me. And what I found as I've entered into that journey as a Christian being held by the creeds that we read on Sunday morning and by the scriptures and the traditions of the church and the mystics and the prophets, what I've found is a God that was bigger than I could ever have imagined before. But you know what is always inherent and is always a part of that faith for me is risk. This is a risky business. That is the undercurrent of faith. Whatever you believe, it requires risk. What are you going to risk it on? What purpose 
are you going to hold on to? Are you going to believe? Because that's what we got to do. I believe God is near. And I believe that means we have to repent. We have to change our minds about how we see this world, about what is the cornerstone, what is the force of our life and our purpose. I believe that person is Jesus. So to end, I want to read you this quote from Thomas Merton. He says, in order to know and love God as he is, we must have God dwelling in us in a new way, not only in his creative power, but in his mercy. So not just as we are his offspring, that we're all kind of in there, right? But in his mercy, not only in his greatness, but in his littleness, by which he empties himself and comes down to us to be empty in our emptiness. And so fills, and so fill us in his fullness. That takes faith. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for um, your word. I thank you for this thing that happened that I believe that many of us believe that you are present in this world, in this reality, and that you have forever altered and shifted it by entering into the room. And I ask that you would give us courage to have the faith to risk to find you bigger, more loving, more powerful, and as another person, as a man who entered the room. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.